This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. This is the show where, of course, we talk about futures, forex, trading psychology, and markets with all your favorite market professionals. And today, uh, we have a huge guest, just a, a legend in the field of futures trading. In fact, he is known as the father of financial futures, the father of carbon trading. He is the chairman of the board and CEO at the American Financial Exchange. He's the Aaron Director and Lecturer of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, he has been all over the place. In fact, he even coined the word derivatives. So yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Our guest today is none other than Richard Sander, and Jeff's going to have a great little conversation with him. We're really looking forward to that. So uh, we'll try and keep this beginning pretty short. Quick market reaction. The Fed just released its interest rate numbers, and uh, nothing changed. It was unanimous this time. They're trying to get inflation up above 2%. Uh, inflation's an interesting thing lately because things like food keep getting cheaper, but there's a lot of inflation in other places that really isn't contained in that number. You know, things like education, healthcare, they're all getting really expensive, but uh, our inflation number is still really low. So I'm glad we have some of the professors at the Fed that figure that out for us. But uh, besides that, there's a little worry about the coronavirus this week, and that's still a topic that, you know, might have a huge effect on the market. We talked last week that the uh, equity market has been looking for a catalyst to come down a little bit, and uh, it did. For two straight days, we were down about a percent each day in the S&P, but then it's rebounded pretty hard. I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and oh, it's about 30 points off its all-time highs, which are about 33, 35, I think, about now. So it looks as if this information has already been discounted to some extent. So those will be the big stories coming up this week. But in the meantime, let's take a look back and a look through now with a man who in 2002 was named the Time Magazine Hero of the Planet uh, and a hero of the environment because of his carbon trading efforts. You guys are going to learn a ton right now from the father of financial futures himself, Mr. Richard Sander. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com, on Twitter at pointsandfigures. This holiday season, I'm raising money to name a hotel room after the unknown soldier at uh, the World War II Museum in New Orleans on a GoFundMe page. If you want to donate 10, 20 bucks, that would be great. Today, it's really a special day here on our, on our Top Step Trader uh, program because Dr. Richard Sandor is on the program. Um, you can look him up on Wikipedia. We'll do a short introduction about what he's done. Currently, he is the CEO and founder of the AFX, the American Financial Exchange, and they are rolling out a hot new contract called the Ameribor contract. Um, welcome to the program, Doc Sander. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, Jeff. Yeah. So for those people that don't know, you are the reason, arguably, you or Leo Malamud are the reason that there are financial futures in, in the world. Yes? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it makes you uncomfortable. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes you uncomfortable. I get it. But th that is the truth. I mean, without you... I, get, I, get, I, I can say, Jeff, what others have said. Um, 
and that is the city of Chicago uh, has dubbed me the father of financial future. Right. I mean, what people that are listening to the program may not understand is uh, back in the early 70s, Doc Sander developed all the interest rate contracts that they may be trading today. And he has a new one called Ameribor. This contract's super interesting to me, Doc, because I traded Eurodollar futures at the CME for 16 years. And, you know, it started in 82. It was the most liquid contract in the world. But in 08, I wasn't trading it anymore. I was, I was trading agricultural futures. But my friends that were trading Eurodollars said the contract didn't act like it should during the financial crisis. Could you sort of illuminate people why? Well, I I don't have the details, Jeff, to be candid with the viewing audiences to tell you about the performance or lack thereof of the euro dollars. Uh, I could only share with your listeners uh, a voyage that we took regarding that. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with interest rate benchmarks might be curious to know that virtually the only benchmark is LIBOR, which is an acronym for the London Interbank Offering Rate. And that is what Eurodollars settled to. These aren't really Eurodollar futures, they're LIBOR futures. There was criticism of LIBOR that emerged in the era immediately preceding the Great Recession of 2007 and 2008. And that criticism built up over nine and ten and then in 2011 the royal bank of scotland fired four people for manipulating libor libor was an accident of history uh it really wasn't meant to be a benchmark it was uh, a response by six bankers to create a floating rate loan to the Shah of Iran because <laughs> they thought interest rates would rise. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they faced the dilemma after they agreed or got agreement from the Shah to reset it, but they didn't have anything to reset it to. So they had the dilemma of what to do. They agreed that the six of them or so would just call each other and would decide by consensus the appropriate increase in the rate. And from that grew accidentally to 200 plus trillion dollars of derivatives and loans linked to this index. It fell into a vacuum 
And people wanted to, as interest rates became more and more volatile in the decade of the 80s, Jeff, when you were trading, people wanted floating rate loans and not fixed rate. Derivative swaps allowed the people the flexibility to deal with an uncertain interest rate environment. In 2011, when we saw this uh, act by the Royal Bank of Scotland, we called our team in and said, this is the beginning of the end. LIBOR is an accident of history. It is a benchmark that's not based on any transactions or de minimis transactions. And we think this is the beginning of the demise of LIBOR. We called up our patent attorneys, called up our trademark attorneys, trademarked Ameribor, the American interbank offering rate. And thus began the journey to establishing a new benchmark, Ameribor, on a new exchange, AFX, the American Financial Exchange. Doc, what's really interesting about that sort of history of the LIBOR is a loan to the Shah. The Shah falls in 79. The euro dollar contract opens in 82 at the CME, and it doesn't do a lot of volume for the first part. And that really doesn't take off until sort of 84-ish, 85. And then it doesn't really take off until the CFMA in 2000 when they gave legal certainty to all the derivatives and swaps that were written on the basis of the LIBOR, which was basically a, a low interest loan to a guy that was now out of power. It's absolutely crazy. Um, so you patented Ameribor in 11. In 08, the demise was really, I mean, my friends that traded Euro dollar said that there was something, there was monkeying going on in the interbank rate because in theory, loans should have been very expensive because nobody understood what everybody's exposure was, what their balance sheets looked like. And interest rates didn't rise at the rate that they thought they would rise. And so all my friends trading it said the thing was a sham. And so then you come in with a Maribor. So what's another interesting piece that you talked about is, you know, the American mortgage market was basically based on LIBOR. It's the London interbank rate. A Maribor, you say, is the American interbank rate, which is probably where the mortgage market for America should tie to. So how did you structure Ameribor to make it look different than LIBOR so that it couldn't be manipulated? Well, that was a pretty easy task. We based it on real transactions. Uh-huh. Yeah, like which, which kind of transactions did you look at to, to find the basis? Okay, let me wind back, Jeff, because I think it's important that you understand the history and how we got to Ameribor. Um, before we get into how you you measure it, so in eleven we we said, okay, LIBOR premise number one, LIBOR will lose its preeminence. Premise number two. 
is that interest rates at zero were not sustainable. Premise number three, the government was both the lender and the borrower. You borrowed from the Federal Home Loan Bank, you lent to the Fed. Uh, there was no room for a uh, viable market with interest rates at zero and the government both being the borrower and lender. And four, you operated under the premise or we operated under the premise that it was a little surreal that London had LIBOR, Europe had EURIBOR, Hong Kong had HIBOR, and the biggest economy in the world didn't have its own benchmark. So uh, how do you get to a benchmark that would be American, that would be based on transactions as opposed to polls, that would be transparent, which LIBOR was not, and would be regulated, which LIBOR was not. So we got on a plane, visited 125 small, medium-sized, and regional banks, because this was going to be an American rate, and you needed American banks to participate in an American rate. And we suggested establishing an exchange where, just like the trading pits or just like the virtual world and where the CME operates, that there would be many borrowers and many lenders and the rates would be determined in a competitive continuous auction. We chose an overnight unsecured rate, which is traditionally called Fed funds. And the problem was there was no borrowing or lending. All of the Fed funds traders had been fired. Um, there were no credit relationships between the banks. They all you know, borrowed and lent to the government, and there was no infrastructure. So we had to begin the entire course. We visited 120. Oh, my gosh. So we had to start from scratch. So as opposed to visiting, as we did in the Chicago Climate Exchange, London, Paris, Singapore, Shanghai, New York, we found ourselves in Bentonville, Arkansas, Kansas City, Memphis, Tupelo, Mississippi, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Evansville, Indiana, etc. And we spent two years bringing the idea. It was received with, I would say, at best, a, a an attitude of indifference um, and at worst uh, comical. When I when you were talking to them and their indifference, that's interesting to me. Did they realize they had a problem that their hedges could blow up on them and 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 weren't really good hedges? Or there was there was a great deal of apprehension about. LIBOR being a real rate, and, and the press continued to hammer on. We got a little window 
when in 2014 the Fed formed the Alternative Rates Reference Rates Committee, and then we were viewed with less skepticism. People said, uh-oh, the Fed's investigating LIBOR. Maybe this guy is on to something. Maybe interest rates won't be zero forever. And the welcoming got a little better as time proceeded. We went into 15 and it looked like we were gonna come off interest rate rise. We went to the SIBO. The SIBO had a history of being inventive and they had an obvious need because unlike the CME and ICE, they had no interest rate product. So we thought if we developed the index, they could list the futures, options, ETFs, all based upon an American interest rate. They agreed. Um, and, and much of what I did in laying the groundwork for financial futures was to work with Congress. I'm 700 years old, Jess. So yeah, 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 I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, in 74, to get financials off the ground, we had to redefine what a commodity was. And in the legislation that, that enabled the CFTC, we worked hard to create the definition, a new definition of futures that included anything tangible and the key word is intangible. That was passed in the House, in the Senate. Um, there was a question of who would get jurisdiction here, um, whether it would be the CFTC and the SEC, and it was a very murky picture. So I had worked as the chief, chief economist for the Board of Trade very closely with the then Herman Talmadge, who was head of the Senate Ag Committee, and a key aide of his, Mike McLeod. And we had done the homework and explained that the Senate version had to have exclusive jurisdiction. Um, it's biblical, you can't serve two masters. And that bill was eventually passed. So we did the same thing with regard to Ameribor, Jeff. We went to Washington in the summer of 2015. We briefed the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC, laid out our groundwork and told them what we were planning, that we had a blank piece of paper but we would be briefing them and every year we would go back and brief them about how we had done and tell them what we were going to do. It's very important to keep the regulators apprised of what you're doing. And I had learned this in 72 when I joined uh, the Chicago Board of Trade as chief economist and as a practice that has served me and more importantly, the entire trading community very well. No doubt. I think the interesting thing about the Board of Trade and CME, because of the groundwork that you laid, um, when we needed to make an argument in Washington on an issue, 
the door was always open. We didn't buy anybody off. It's just that the argument was open to be made because of the credibility. And we donated 50% to each side of the aisle, you know, whatever. The interesting thing is you were telling me about that statute. It, it really is applicable to cryptocurrency futures today. Yes, it is. Right? I mean, it's a very broad statute, right? I mean, it's very interesting. Yes, as a matter of fact, um, our newest board member is Chris Giancarlo, who just uh, retired as chairman of the CFTC. And uh, you may know Chris has taken the leadership in, in digital assets. But let me quickly uh, let me let me quickly roll out the story, uh, uh, Jeff, so we we can focus. Um, for your listeners, the answers to the questions that you posed at the outset. We opened up in 2015 on December 11th. We had four banks uh, associated in Wisconsin, the biggest bank there, Old National in Indiana, the biggest bank there, MB in Chicago, one of the biggest uh, mid-sized banks, and Frost Bank in Texas one of the biggest independent banks in Texas. And we did average 13 million a day. Um, We continued to roll out the product. And as of today, we went from four banks to 136 banks plus a thousand correspondents. So we're 1136 banks about 22% of America's banks who uh, borrow or lend uh, on the platform. And we have 36 non-banks, insurance companies, FCMs, broker-dealers, and most recently corporates like John Deere. The transaction Ameribor is overnight unsecured lending. The magic sauce has been a Chicago recipe. Get many buyers and many sellers. It used to be on the floor. Now it's in virtual space. Compete with bids and offers all day long. And the average volume weighted interest rate through all trades during a given day is called the Maribor. It is on Bloomberg. Um, it can be accessed by anybody if you don't have a Bloomberg at Ameribor.net. And uh, we are IOSCO independently audited as the International Organization of Security Commissioners. And they define 19 principles and we adhere to all 19. We launched a futures market, which is a one-week futures. Um, And the reason it's one week is the Fed every other week tells banks what they need on liquidity purposes. And by having a weekly contract, they can hedge their borrowing or lending rates and then borrow and lend on a weekly basis. In addition to that, we have a 90-day, 
Uh, Maribor is now at a number of banks that are using it as an interest rate benchmark. And um, we expect in 2020, we will at the beginning of the year witness a one-year floating rate piece of paper loan that's monthly indexed to Ameribor, and we expect to be seeing swaps. The membership in the banking community, to give our readers notice, includes every major bank in Chicago. So MB is now owned by Fifth Third. And we have private bank, which is CIBC, Northern Trust is a member, Trust is a member. Um, the biggest members are the regionals like Fifth Third, Huntington, Key, Regents. And about 40% of the banks between 20 and 100 billion across the United States. Uh, we have uh, been educating, uh, started a series of lectures at universities, so the professors include Ameribor. Um, we have interns from the local universities working. We're educating the accounting profession. Uh, we've got FASB accounting for floating to fixed, and we expect to have fixed to floating. And uh, we will begin to see, we think, adoption of Ameribor. Our target audience is not the big banks. We think SOFR is fine for them. We endorse what they are doing. There are 5,300 banks, and we have not recruited the top 15. We're interested in the 5,000 regional, mid-sized, and community banks. Of the 18 trillion in bank deposits in America, 9 trillion are held by regional and mid-sized and community banks, and about half of their assets are floating rates. So we think that the world will look more like a commodity world and an asset class of fixed income and equities than the traditional LIBOR. LIBOR had, was one benchmark, one size fits all, and that's contrary to everything you and I know, Jeff, as traders. In crude oil, you've got four benchmarks. You've got WTI, you, you've got Brent, you've got Dubai, you've got Shanghai. In equity markets, you have S&P, Dow Jones, Russell, Valueline. More stock indexes than there are stocks. And the same thing is true of fixed income. So the world that we see emerging is a world that has multiple benchmarks, SOFR, Ameribor, and anything else that it Your will Ibor. be. Yeah, Ibor. With, yes. What? So talk to, me, talk to me about the structure of the contract. What's the tick, tick value? So between the bid-ask spread at the smallest, what's the tick value? Your dollars was 25 going to 1250 and now it's six and a quarter. No, it's it's a million dollar contract that parallels the sofa, okay? 
and um, and twenty five bucks a tick, and we can trade in increments. The one week is an eighteen million uh, dollar contract, then because that gives you a round tick. Because we needed weekly, so obviously you have to increase the size of the contract, and that gives you a thirty five dollar tick. And any of the traders. Um, can deal with your FCMs and it's carried by most of them have the capability to execute. AFX alternatively is a professional market. So it has uh, the kinds of people, not only at the banks, but insurance companies, hedge funds, people uh, who are capable of dealing a million dollars and when I say two billion in volume a day, that's not the notional value. We have actually put through the Fed wire system close to three quarters of a trillion dollars of real money. So it's real. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the fundamentals of trading. In a lot of the stir contracts, your IBOR, um, Eurodollar, the way to trade it is not to scalp it because any sort of volatility that happens in one month, there's just not enough movement. So you see a lot of people doing butterfly spreads and different types of spread strategies. Ameribor, more of a spread contract versus, let's say, you know, the, the long-term bond, the 30-year is a scalper's contract. You can spread certainly in the 30-year between months, but, you know, you can scalp that up and down because there's a lot of movement. There's some volatility in it. Same with Ameribor, uh, more of a short-term, classic short-term interest rate contract where you'd want to have a spread strategy to try to trade it? I think you can if you want, if you were a directional trader. We have market makers now. So the, the, the market is generally a quarter tick wide. And so it's really a tight market. So you can trade it, but it's, it's of interest because it's a weekly, so you have less smoothing as a result of the average of a weekly price than you do in Fed funds. So you can, in fact, trade it. But having said that, it's a new market. It's inefficient. There's, there are opportunities when the the calendar spread is traded at even money as opposed to 12 under in euro dollar. So it has to be looked at. It is not for amateurs. It's for professionals. They have to understand we're averaging about 100 contracts a day, uh, which we're pleased with. It will grow. It's but a good start. It should only be be used. It is a good start, um, and we're pleased with the start. But your viewers should, if they want to express an interest rate opinion, it's tight uh, spread. They can get in and out if they want to trade it for five or ten ticks, or if they think there's going to be a big move. You can target it uh, to Fed meetings and trade the one week, or you can trade the 90 days, or you can have spread positions if you have a view on the curve or butterflies. But again, it's not for amateurs. 
Yeah, your I mean Euro dollars when it first started back in eighty two did not trade very much uh average daily volume. When I started uh in the options there in sort of eighty six, I think a big day for us was like twelve thousand options. I mean Yeah, this takes this takes time. This is so that's a that's a very tight and that's a very tight spread. Yeah. Question um great contracts have natural buyers and sellers. You you talked about you know the hedge funds which are sort of market makers or you know and then what about corporate treasurers would they participate in this market? Yes, they would. Um, we have, um, as I say, we are have reached out and uh, basically uh, gotten our first corporate member, John Deere, and we have about five or ten in the pipeline. So anybody who has an interest rate risk is, you know, as you well know, is the Eurodollar futures. The reason that that interest rate futures, and it was one of the reasons, by the way, that the Ginny May and the bonds were the first, because sure. they had natural constituents, and their volumes are big because there's so many more participants than there are in the physical commodities market. So these markets are, are, you know, the government comes every week, every month, every three months, every six months, you know, with auctions, with supply. The information is enormous. Uh, You know, at every point, whether it's housing starts, CPI, GDP, you know, money supply, the financial markets in America are so strong because they are and support hedging needs of thousands of participants and they're totally transparent. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing about the American marketplace compared to, let's say, mainland China's markets. Um, which are yeah, not... and it's it's all it's all capital markets. We're the envy of the world because our markets. You can, as a trader, feel confident that more or less, and by and large, you have as much information as anybody, and that's and in a market whose integrity is suspect like LIBOR, you don't have that comfort. And our thought process was very simple. Let's do it the old-fashioned Chicago tradition. It sort of works. Okay, make it, it sort of works, it right? It sort of I mean, works. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, right? I mean, it's worked and, for uh, 150 years or so. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I mean so... Let's talk a little bit about the company. You guys are looking to hire employees right now, no? Yes. So if I wanted to come to work for the American uh, VFX, what sort of people are you looking for and what sort of qualifications should I have? Oh, I, you know, we're happy. You know, we're looking for people at, at all levels, um, including if you're, uh, you know, a college graduate and you're smart and have sales skills and a little bit of, of analytics and you like finance, 
come join us. If you're a if you if you are an institutional salesman and know how to deal with money management and short-term cash management, come talk to us. If you're a PhD and is interested in analytics, come talk to us. Um, we've had a history, as you may know, Jeff, and, and perhaps, well, I'm proud of, of a lot of things. By and large, I'm proudest uh, of my role as a teacher. And there's been thousands of people in this industry that I've had the honor and privilege to make successful, to turn their careers into enviable paths. And that's what we do and we like to do. I still teach at the University of Chicago part-time. I consider myself a, uh, a well, while I'm a professional, you know, a serial inventor and entrepreneur, the core of whatever small success that I've had is because I'm a teacher. So anybody wants to learn hungry, um, wants to start at the bottom and work their way up, we're happy. Anybody who thinks they can add value, let us know. I can echo that sort of. Um, there are certain people in the industry. I mean, the floor always had a good mentorship thing, you know, traders mentored other traders, but I, this is not like, I don't, Richard has mentored a lot of people. Um, there are other people in the futures industry like that. I think, you know, like Fred Arditi at CME was, was sort of had that ethos taught it to Paul. Um, exactly. And so I, I think, I think, you know, going there's certain things about working for startups. So I'm going to put my venture capital hat on now. Right. Um, I was talking to this kid from U of I and he had a job, he could get a job at Google and, you know, make a good buck, go work for Google. And he also had an opportunity to go work for a startup with some really amazing people that were great teachers. And I said, well, it's kind of your choice, but you only get the chance to work with that startup with amazing people one time. And you can always work for Google. And so I think if people sort of look at the opportunity cost of not working for somebody like you, they're missing out. The journey is so great and the struggle is, is so great. You're going to learn so much that it's going to benefit you in spades later in your life. I mean, at least that's what I found. You know, I'm, I'm not as old as you. I'm 57. But, um, you know. I'm 700, Jeff. You're a kid. <laughs> you and Mel Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So just to, on a personal note, so you've had quite a bit of success in your life doing this. Why do it again? Why not retire? Well, I, I, after we sold uh, the climate exchange for $600 million to Jeff Sprecher at ICE, I took my wife and um, uh, we went to visit our kids in Atlanta and grandkids. And then we went to L.A. to visit our other kids for a couple of weeks and grandkids. Then we went down and visited uh, some friends of my wife's in Panama, and after about six weeks, my wife gently suggested that perhaps it would be better if I went back 
to work. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm, I'm restless is the answer, and so yeah, well, is she. She's a, she's an artist. She, you know, has just done some work in in uh in the scientific visualization area she you know is a an artist that keeps busy and and we've had a wonderful life because our both both of us have careers so i think uh i enjoy working so does she i think i'd go crazy if i had to sit on a beach all day so the the bottom line is, is I'm restless. I enjoy challenges. The bigger the challenge, the more I enjoy it. And the ability to, we were working on water markets before I turned my attention to LIBOR. I'll, be, I'll get back to it someday. But I, I enjoy, and, I, and people say, why don't you retire? And my answer, Jeff, they answer yes, the question that you asked. That I, my response is, I am retired. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're having so much fun doing it. There, there are markets in everything. I think markets in everything. And like you bring up water, I've talked. I've talked to people about having water futures for years. Um, nobody's ever been able to do it. Where else do you see the AFX going? Let's say a Maribor is wildly successful. You're going to develop more contracts. I mean, without doing secret sauce, where do you see the potential for future sorts of contracts that can manage risk in the way futures do? Oh, I I think there's uh, the focus of AFX is is laser like. We're we don't want to do anything outside of the interest rate realm and we do see some real potential opportunities other than the products that are listed which i can't get into but outside of this realm you know there's just enormous risks uh certainly you know in the insurance area and you know uh, and actually fred r diddy and i were friends and faculty members at berkeley i wrote a paper in 1970 in the british journal and finance on catastrophe derivatives oh so absolutely so you look at that, that's big, water, another big, biodiversity, any of the things that are threatened under climate change are all viable, plus the fact we have whole new areas that, that have to do with capacity of all sorts, including chip capacity. That there will be intellectual property, you know, that that will be defined as we have switched from a manufacturing world and a physical goods, there will be a whole new brand of futures out there. Jeff, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate your spending the time with me. And uh, it's always great to talk to you as a trader and your audience, because uh, there's a special place in my heart for 
Chicago exchanges. Um, it's what uh, gave me my start and my life and my living. So thank you so much for having no, me. No, it's, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much um, for coming on. And it's always, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, another little fact about Richard, he and I are invested in some little startups together that we watch and, and hopefully someday we'll grow into big companies. But I, I really wish you a lot of success on the AFX and Ameribor. It sounds like a very interesting contract and, and one that people that are listening to this podcast ought to check into and, um, and perhaps uh, look into trading. Um, you can sign up at the AFX.com or uh, contact your clearing firm and hopefully they uh, can hook you up. But I really appreciate it. Happy holidays. And I hope the rest of the year goes well for you. Jeff, thank you. And again, it's fun working together on startups because it's just another expression of both of our interests in risk taking and new ideas. And to everybody out there, uh, I hope 2020 gives all of you and your team, Jeff, and your visit is a healthy, a happy, and a prosperous new year. Great. Uh, stay warm in the Chicago winter, and good luck. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Everybody, thank you so much for making it to the end of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We hope you really enjoyed uh, the conversation Jeff had with Richard. Uh, he's certainly seen a lot in the industry, and Sometimes that's the best way to learn, right? Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new guest. In the meantime, dive into our blog, join our private Facebook group. Just go out there and try and interact with a few traders. In fact, let's make that your goal this week. Go out there and talk to someone, learn a little something. I think uh, that empathy is an important thing to build. It'll make you a better trader. Until then, this is Thursday, so I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe, stay healthy, and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.